Right, okay, Law and Grace series, take two. <laughs> the, <laughs> for those on the, on the tape, lifting it, the, the laughter is that the tape just went totally up the spout, so we've just rewound it and we're starting again. Okay, back to the Law and Grace series. And, and you missed loads of jokes, but never mind. Um, remember, Paul said, we are not under law, but under grace. And so, you know, sort of like, that's what we've been going into. And uh, it's nuts and bolts tonight because we're going to define and look at the errors that in this series we're trying to refute, the errors of legalism and license. And uh, what we're going to do first is define for the second time because, of course, <laughs> the tape broke down, so we're starting again. Sorry about that, everybody. Um, uh, first of all, define legalism. Living the Christian life on the basis of law. It's introducing demands and restrictions other than those that come from the New Testament or the covenant of grace that we are under. And uh, you can refer to it as confusing the covenants because the, the early church faced this very much with Jews who, although they got saved and they knew the Lord, they say, sorry, I've got a load of fluff in my mouth here, hang on. <laughs> just have a drink of water here. Dear, oh dear. Mm. Uh. Oh, Law and Grace take three. No, <laughs> it'll be all right on the night, yes. Um, oh no, this is the night and it isn't all right. Oh, and of course, the early church, they, they experienced this with Jews who got converted, but said, you've got to stay under the law. So the law of Moses, old covenant still applies. And when Gentiles got converted, these believers said, look, they've got to be circumcised and they've got to be under the law. And so basically, the Christians there were confusing the covenants. Now, on the church scene today, it's not necessarily the Ten Commandments and the other 604 odd, but you do find that there are people who have all kinds of demands and restrictions and they say that if you're a Christian you've got to do this, this and this and you mustn't do that, that and that and yet these are things that don't necessarily come from the Bible, from the New Testament and so basically legalism is placing demands and restrictions on people other than those in the new covenant of grace, and from any such thing we are free in Jesus. Now, the opposite side of that is license, the error of license, and uh, far from these people trying to impose laws on you, here we've got the Christians who refuse to live in submission to the demands and restrictions of the New Testament even. They, they claim freedom completely. We're not under law, we're under grace. And for them, they're saying grace is basically do what you like. And, uh, you know, they say, look, God's grace has saved us. And, you know, sort of like, therefore, because we've got salvation, it doesn't really matter if we go against what God's word says. And, you know, and for them, sanctification or holiness is, is very much a take it or leave it affair. 
Um, and they're, they're choosy about what the Bible does teach. You know, there are bits that they don't like, so they push them to one side. And uh, very much try and justify it by the leading of the Holy Spirit. They say, well, you know, the, you know, the Spirit, this is what we believe the Spirit is saying to the churches today, even though it might be something that isn't in the Bible. And of course, the important thing to realise is that the Holy Spirit never leads in a way that's contrary to the Bible. And uh, so license is the kind of the lackadaisical, uh, you know, kind of outlook that says, all right, we're Christians, but it doesn't matter too much, you know, about what the Bible says. You know, I mean, okay, it doesn't matter if you break the speed limit when you dry, drive. And, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, in Romans and elsewhere, Paul says, obey the law of the land. No, that doesn't matter. We're not under law or under grace, they say. And so, in effect, what they're doing is, 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 is saying, well, look, we don't want to follow the Lord, but we want to look as if we are following the Lord. And so you get all these, you know, kind of spiritual somersaults to try and justify disobedience to God's word. And, uh, I, I mean, to that, Paul says, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? by no means and uh, you know Paul was very straight on that right we're saved by the grace of God and having been saved from the penalty of sin by the grace of God now by that same grace of God we're to be set free from the power of sin in our lives and license tries to dodge that Legalism says you overcome sin by your own efforts and all these unbiblical rules and regulations. That's wrong, but license says, well, it doesn't matter whether sin is overcome in our lives or not because, you know, it's all grace, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and so what we're going to move on to do, we've got the, these two things, legalism on the one hand and license on the other. And what we're going to do now is to see how we can identify them. We're going to look at their distinguishing characteristics. And immediately we've got to say, well, why are we going to do that? And the reason why is so that each one of us here tonight, and I hope that everyone from this day onwards who hears the tapes, assuming they're coming out, we'll find out later, <laughs> won't we, if this talk actually comes out. But the reason why is so that each of us can look to ourselves and on the basis of what we see tonight from the Bible, judge ourselves about this to search ourselves and see if there's any deficiency there that we can put right. We might spot legalism in our lives. Well, if we do that, we've got to judge it and put it right. We might spot license in our lives. And if we do that, we've got to put that right. Uh, more likely than not, we'll find a bit of both in it, all right. Um, you know, you remember at the start of the series, I said they're like wings of a plane. And the point is that you can be up either wing, either a lot or a little, and of course we ought to be in the fuselage, that's where the passengers belong, in a plane. But the point is, you can be on up one wing a bit in regards to this, that and the other, but in other areas of your life you can be on the other wing. So you can be licentious about some things, whilst at the same time being legalistic about others. It's a real hodgepodge, as we're going to see as we go through this. So the point is that as we define the characteristics of each of these errors, all right, uh, we've got to look at ourselves and, and if we identify anything, to say, all right, Lord, you know, enable me to put this right. So let's, let's start with legalism, all right? So then, 
what are the distinguishing characteristics of believers with a legalistic streak in them? All right. Now we're going to look at various things. All right. But firstly, legalism tends to think only in terms of black and white. And legalism or legalists are unhappy with the idea of grey areas. All right. Now we've We've got to look at two different aspects to this, all right, but, but first of all, remember, what I'm saying is that legalism thinks only in terms of black and white. It refuses or has a difficulty with what you would call grey areas, and there are two categories that we've got to look at, all right. First of all, turn to Romans 14. Uh, Romans chapter 14. Well, it's a shame that the people listening to the tape missed all those jokes at the beginning. What, what a shame. Perhaps I'll, I'll, I'll work them into a Bible study in a few weeks' time when everyone here's forgotten them. Um, <laughs> I have been told that my jokes are very forgettable, so <laughs> we'll do it next week then. Um, right, okay, Romans chapter 14, and uh, I'm going to read from verse 1 to 6, and then verse, the first part of verse 13. Now listen to this. Paul speaking, accept him whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters. Now mark that, disputable matters. If something is in dispute, there is no black and white, all right? It's grey area. And here is Paul saying there are grey areas. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now here we've got Paul saying, don't judge each other, all right? But of course, the specific category here is things that are disputable. They're grey areas. This isn't Paul saying you mustn't judge each other full stop, because Paul says we must judge all things. But here he's talking about areas that he's defining as being grey. There is no absolute right or wrong. We mustn't judge each other or other people on those areas. And then he goes on to say, one man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Now verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Now, what you've got here is that Paul gives two examples of grey areas. One is vegetarianism, 
and the other is special days. Um, now, now, the special days thing, there is a tape uh, in the, the general teaching series, I think it's called Is Christmas Scriptural, and it looks at this in more detail in regards to special days, because I mean Blinder and I are Christmas freaks, whereas other believers are completely against Christmas, and you know, we examined that in that tape. But he takes examples of vegetarianism and special days, alright. Now, we have two areas here where the Bible is absolutely clear in its teaching, alright? Firstly, the Bible is absolutely clear that meat-eating is God's will, and vegetarianism isn't. From Noah onwards, in that covenant, and we looked at it, didn't we? God said, you're not going to be vegetarian anymore, you eat meat, okay? So the Bible is quite clear on what God's will is in regards to that. It's right to eat meat, it's wrong to be a vegetarian. The Bible is also quite clear that in the New Covenant there are no Sabbaths. We saw that quite clearly, no Sabbaths. The Bible is quite clear in regards to that. But what we've got here is an example of two things where the Bible is quite clear in what it teaches, but where going against what the Bible teaches is a permissible thing to do. Categorizing you as a weaker brother, but without categorizing you as being in sin. Can you see the difference? I.e., with vegetarianism and this special days thing, for example, we have here an area where going against what the Bible says is not sin. It is left to the conscience of the individual. I.e., to be a vegetarian does not put you out of fellowship. If it did, Paul wouldn't be writing this. He'd be saying vegetarianism is a sin. Eat meat. But he doesn't do that. Paul says, if that's the way your conscience is, then it's down to you and you mustn't be judged. The Bible's clear about vegetarianism not being right, but nevertheless, it's not a morally absolute area. So we have here areas where going against what the Bible teaches doesn't mean that you're in sin and out of fellowship. Now, we've got to be very, very careful here, because Christians who are into license, they would want to put things like being immoral in here. They'd like to put things like getting drunk in here. You can't do that. You can't put stealing in here. Why not? Well, for the simple reason that those things are expressly forbidden in the Bible. They're categorised as being sin, no go. You do not do them. And if you do do them, you've got to confess them and put them right. Okay. But here we're seeing that if you've got a believer who can't bring themselves to eat meat, for whatever reason, even after being shown that the Bible teaches that ideally we ought to, alright, then what we're seeing is that if you've got someone like that, uh, uh, you know, an ideological vegetarian, who even though you show them what the Bible says is still blind to it, then what the Bible says is love them 
and leave them alone. Can you see? Love them and leave them alone. You couldn't do that with someone who's sleeping around in the church. You couldn't do that with someone who's stealing in the church. Of course you couldn't. But vegetarianism is here given as an example. Love them and then leave them alone. And ensure at all times, and this will be true, say, of the love feast, but it will be true any time you invited them round to your place for a meal, make sure at all times that they are provided with vegetarian fare. That's only right and proper. Can you see? Um, and the point is that don't keep arguing with them about it. You see? It's their conscience. By all means, pray for them. But Paul says they're weaker in the faith. Welcome them, but not for dispute about opinions. Discuss it by all means, but then leave it alone. They are free to do that. Uh, the other example, he gives us special days. Now, there are, I mean, not in this fellowship, but there are very strict Sabbath keepers in the church. And, I mean, who knows, one day we might have them amongst us. Uh, you'll, you'll find that, that, that they're convinced that Sunday is a Sabbath, and they believe that you mustn't do anything on the Sabbath except worship and reading the Bible and presumably bodily functions. I mean, that's allowed, obviously. But, you know, very much like the Jews in regards to their Saturdays. They won't shop, uh, they won't read the paper, and they won't go out except to go to fellowship and worship the Lord. Now then, the point is that with a believer like that, Paul says, well, fine. They're weak in the faith. They're fine. It's nothing to fall out over. By all means, pray for them that their consciences will become stronger. But it's nothing to fall out about. It's not the same as someone being immoral or someone stealing. But the main point, because remember I'm saying that legalism has a job with grey areas. Now what we're seeing here is an actual area of life, and we've seen two examples that the Bible actually quotes, where the Bible's teaching is clear. We eat meat, there are no special days, okay? In that sense, there's no Sabbath for us. But the Bible says that if believers, because of their consciences, can't go along with that, then give them that freedom. They're not out of fellowship because they're doing it. Now, legalism does not like this kind of principle in the Bible, but Paul says, do not judge each other on these grey areas. They're nothing to fall out about at all. Absolute tolerance is the order of the day. Now, we haven't finished on this because we've got to move on to the second area. The first category we've just looked at involves things that are specified in the Bible, meat-eating, and, you know, Sabbaths, all that is covered specifically in the Bible, all right? But the second area is precisely things that aren't specifically mentioned in the Bible at all. Now, you see the point? Because there are many things in life that the Bible doesn't even mention. And because the Bible doesn't cover it specifically, therefore these things are grey areas where no one can ultimately make judgments against other people and what they do. Now, two immediate examples that I give of this would be, one, the cinema, and two, TV, the cinema coming first, historically. Now, at 
their inception at the beginning of the movies and at the beginning of TV, both were, were nearly universally condemned by Christians as being intrinsically sinful. When the movies hit the scene, came on the scene, and then when television came about, nearly universally Christians of that time said that they were evil, alright, and that no Christian was expected to have anything to do with them. Now, it's interesting that as the years have gone by, Christians now accept, I think, or most Christians would accept, that whether you're talking about the cinema or TV, you're talking about things that are actually in themselves quite neutral. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the cinema, there's nothing wrong with TV. Now, what you might watch at the cinema and, you know, on TV is a different question, but I think it's accepted now that there's nothing intrinsically evil about the cinema or TV. Um, and yet there was a day when they were condemned universally. Now, the point is the Bible obviously mentions neither. And my position would be, even if Christians still universally thought it was evil, you know, to go to the cinema um, or watch the TV, my own feeling would remain that precisely because the Bible doesn't mention them, they are grey areas. And I remember when I was at, at, at Bible College, an incident that had happened just the year before I was there. <coughs> and um, one Saturday night, a couple of guys had been out to the cinema, alright. Now, it was fairly common that if, if, if something, be it on a Saturday or a Sunday or any time, if something of great need or import came up, then it was very common for just impromptu prayer times to be called in the chapel. Great. Everyone available would be called to prayer. A great idea there. You know, it happened when I was there. Great. And, uh, but these two guys, they went to the flicks one Saturday night. And they came back to the college, you know, about sort of 10 o'clock in the evening or something. And it's deserted. Now, when the college was deserted and you couldn't find anyone, it meant one thing. There was a special prayer meeting. So they thought, right, something's happened. Let's get down there. So down they go to the chapel. You know, chapel's packed. All right, and in they go, and they kneel down. And, you know, obviously the first thing you've got to do is, hey, what's this about? So they crept into the back really quiet, only to find that the prayer evening was for them because they'd gone to the pictures. <laughs> but embarrassing. I mean, I just wish those two guys had been at the college the same year as I was there because I might have had a nicer time if they were. You know, I was very much the odd one out at that college, the same as they were. But can you see the point? You know, that these things are... I would say grey areas precisely because they're not mentioned in the Bible. I mean, some Christians, for instance, believe science fiction to be intrinsically demonic. Now, I bring this up because I am a great sci-fi fan, aren't I? I mean, most of my teaching I got from the Bible and, and Star Trek. Um, you know, so, you know, to me this is important, but there are believers, you know, who believe that it's evil. I mean, I, I have heard um, E.T. in teaching being said to be an effigy of demons and at meetings where young children uh, have actually brought their, their little E.T. statues and puppets up to the front so they can be disposed of in the same way as if they were occult artifacts. Um, now, again, 
I would maintain that anything like that, precisely because the Bible doesn't cover it and the Bible doesn't cover science fiction, science fiction as a, a, an art form has only been with us for, you know, seriously for the last two or three hundred years, I would say that it's down to the conscience of each individual believer. Um, everyone is free to debate and disagree. That's the whole point. We're free to debate and disagree and then to agree to differ. But no one is free to make authoritative judgments on other Christians in regards to these things that are grey areas. Precisely because there is no absolute moral basis from the Word of God on which to judge them. If you believe that science fiction is the same as the occult, well then you of course are going to avoid it like the plague. And I totally respect that. If you believe it's occult, you mustn't touch it. I don't, so I'm free to. I'm not going to judge you, you mustn't judge me. If you think sci-fi is occult, why should I fall out with you over that? And here's what Paul is saying, on these things that are grey areas, just live and let live, alright? If you believe something to be wrong, don't do it. And that solves the problem, doesn't it? But don't pile into other people who don't happen to agree on those particular things. Um, I would put smoking in here. The Bible doesn't mention it. So for me, smoking is in here. It's down to the conscience of the individual, alright. Um, I'd put masturbation in here. Because I can't turn to a chapter and verse and speak authoritatively about it. And the whole point about this is that if you can't say something that, you know, authoritative from the Word of God, then don't say anything authoritative at all. This is the whole point that Paul brings out, these grey areas, alright. Now then, in regards to smoking and masturbation, vast areas of the church would disagree on those two things that I've said. Maybe you do. If you disagree with me, brilliant! That's the whole point. We're free to disagree. That's the whole thing. Otherwise you get, I mean, churches, there have actually been movements, fellowships, who have split up because of a disagreement amongst the leadership over masturbation. Movements have split over this officially into the pro-masturbation and the anti-masturbation. Now, I think this is absolutely lunatic. If you believe it's wrong, don't do it. No problem. You know, but when Christians start, it's absolutely daft. So what we've got here are grey areas that are to be left to the conscience of the individual believer. Now, just a quickie, alright? Marijuana, LSD, heroin are not mentioned in the Bible. Does it mean they're okay? Now, obviously, the answer is of course they're not, because that's covered by drunkenness. And I've often had the argument put to me, well, what's the difference between smoking and marijuana and LSD and heroin? It's all drugs. Well, my answer is that, that, that a smoker is not getting drunk on cigarettes. That's the point. It's not an intoxicant. Whereas drug taking on the modern scene, although not mentioned in the Bible, it's covered by the Bible's edicts on drunkenness because it's an intoxicant. You're not in your right mind. So therefore we can say that marijuana, LSD, all, all that is by definition wrong 
precisely because it's covered by drunkenness or intoxication, all right? So, that's the first point about legalism. Legalists don't like shades of grey. They want everything to be black and white. And I've shown you that everything isn't black and white at all. So be careful whenever you hit up against, you know, sort of Christian thinking that doesn't, everything is black and white. Everything isn't black and white, and the Bible confirms that. Now then, secondly, legalists tend to home in on what they consider to be the external faults in others, whilst missing completely their own internal sins of self-righteousness, pride and spiritual superiority. This is a second aspect of legalism, alright? Homes in on what they consider to be other people's external faults, whilst missing its own internal fault of spiritual superiority, i.e. going around judging people all over the place, you know, I mean, without a second thought. Go to Matthew 23, just, just to define this. I'm not saying that, that judging is wrong under any circumstance, but I'm saying that legalism does, you know, sort of it gets obsessed with, with people's external faults all the time, whilst failing to judge its own um, more serious internal sins. Matthew 23. Uh, I've temporarily lost Matthew. Oh, there he is. Uh, Matthew 23 and verse 23. Now, this is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. Well, he's talking to the teachers of the law as well. You hypocrites. Not a very nice thing to say, is it? But he said it anyway. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. Now, here are the Pharisees. They've got a little bit of dill, you know, sort of like they've got their little tray outside their council flats, you know, you know their little window box, their herb garden, you see, and they carefully pick their herbs uh, you know, they got their razor blades out, you know, they don't use it for cocaine anymore because they gave that up years ago. They got their razor blades out and they're, they're, they're chopping up all their herbs and they're, they're, they're carefully making sure that a tenth that they keep that so it, it goes to the Lord. And given that they were under the law, they were quite right to do that. But the point is, Jesus said, there you are, you know, doing that with your herbs, but you're missing justice mercy and faithfulness. And he says, you should have practiced the latter, because they were under the law, it was right for them to tithe, without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Now, can you see the attitude that Jesus is coming up against here? Now, the the thing about the gnat and the camel here, because everything is really symbolic in the Bible, and of course it's people like me who bring out the symbolism, <laughs> it's what we're here for. The gnat is the smallest named unclean animal in the Old Testament, the gnat. The camel is the biggest named unclean animal. So the point is, it was wrong, you know, you couldn't um, you know, eat a camel or use a camel for sacrifice, it was unclean. You couldn't with a gnat, all right? Now, the point is that here are the Pharisees, all right, and every time they go to drink something, they're, 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 they're checking that there's not a gnat in the drink floating there. 
Because if there is and they swallow it, oh, they've broken the law. Oh, I've sinned, blah, blah, blah. So they're all going around with their wife's fishnet tights, presumably, to put, you know, strain it out. And the point is that here they are straining out the gnats out of their drinks and they're swallowing camels whole. And the thing is that what we've got here is that they're nitpicking the little external faults in other people's lives whilst they're ignoring major sin in their own <coughs> life. And self-righteousness is pretty major sin. Now, as a smoker, or should I say almost a non-smoker, because it's going well, it's, it's going well, but the point is, as a smoker, I've been castigated by other Christians. I mean, I've been really rebuked for smoking by other Christians who've had unconfessed sins of anger, unforgiveness, dishonesty, hatred in their lives. Now, can you see the lunacy in regards to that? Um, and, and many Christians, they, they seem to be entirely unable to cope with a brother or sister who just can't break free of the smoking habit, but whose life might be, you know, sort of like exemplary in every other way. Do you see what I mean? And rather than seeing the faithfulness, the devotion, the sacrifice to the Lord, all they can see is the cigarette. Um, and it's daft. I mean, after all, Spurgeon, and no one in their right mind would speak against Spurgeon, a wonderful man, wonderfully used by God, he smoked a pipe for some of his Christian life. You know, and, and, and yet some Christians, if you smoke, that's it. That's all they can see about you. And it's, it's kind of there you've got a legalistic attitude to one thing. And it comes out and it affects fellowship. And, and it, it, it's wrong. Um, I'd put what I call the ideological teetotal brigade in here, all right? I.e. the Christians who say it is a sin to drink alcohol full stop. And there are many Christians who believe that. Now, when I say ideological teetotal, all right, what I'm talking about are people who say it's wrong full stop, it's a moral issue. There are many Christians who are teetotal because of their conscience, either because they know that they can't control it, or maybe they work with or have friends who can't control it. And therefore, they're teetotal because of practical consideration for others. That is entirely honourable. That's brilliant. But what I mean by the ideological teetotal brigade, these are Christians who say it's a sin to drink alcohol full stop. Another example of a legalistic attitude to a particular thing. And uh, I mean, Jesus turned water into wine. Uh, whereas many believers, had they been Jesus, they, they'd have been quite happy to turn the wine into water. You know, the other way round. So, there you've got the fact that legalism, alright, it nitpicks at what it sees to be the external faults in other people, but is blind to, to the bigger sins in its own life, that is getting them to the point where they're judging other believers in precisely the areas where the Bible says that's where you can't judge each other because they're grey areas. So that's the second aspect of legalism. Now then, the third aspect of legalism, how it shows itself, is that legalists have various rules and regulations 
uh, not directly from the Word of God, that they want to impose on other people. And the key word there is impose. For instance, they want to impose how often and how long you're supposed to read the Bible. Or how often and how long you must pray for. Or how often and for how long you ought to fast. Now, I'm not in any way saying that, 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 that Bible reading, prayer and fasting aren't important. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is the Bible does not prescribe how often and for how long. And yet these people come along and they want to impose that on people. Now that is wrong. I mean, tithing would fit in here. If you had a church where tithing was mandatory, not where you can tithe if you want to, it's up to you, but a church where tithing is mandatory, because tithing is not laid on us in the New Covenant. Not at all. It's free will, all the way. So a church that is imposing tithing and saying that this is mandatory upon you, that is wrong. And again, you've got legalism there. Um, and it's, you know, sort of here that you've got the rules and regulations and the demands and restrictions that are laid on Christians, but they don't come from the New Testament. I mean, one thing in this regard, it's worth turning your mind to a classic example of legalism. Notice how, how many of the sectarian movements, and I'm talking about the demonic sects, okay, the ones that are clearly demonic and, you know, they're false teachers, you know, denying the divinity of Jesus, blah, blah, blah. Notice how many of them are strongly into no tea and no coffee. And they say because of the tannin and the caffeine. <gasps> drugs, drugs, Christians mustn't be on drugs, all right? Now, go to Colossians chapter 2, and, and let's see what Paul says about this sort of thing. And uh, I, I, I guess as we read this, ask yourself this. Is Paul sympathetic to that? Does Paul veer towards that kind of thing, all right? Well, the Mormons, among many examples. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16. He says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, see? or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. There you've got again the special days thing. It's up to you. Don't let yourself be judged. And then verse 20, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And all this, you mustn't touch that, you mustn't touch that, can't have that, can't have that. Paul says that's worldliness. It's not spirituality. Oh yes, it can look like it, but it is false because it's merely worldliness. Worldliness takes two forms. There's hedonism, eat, drink and be merry, do what you like because tomorrow we die. And there's asceticism, the very strict life, abstaining from everything because then you'll be accepted by God because you're so disciplined, blah, blah, blah. Both are aspects of the sinful nature. And Paul says, don't have anything to do with it, all right? So various rules and regulations that don't come directly from the word of God. Right, fourthly, legalists tend to favour an authoritarian approach to church leadership, all right? 
And they make the submission to church, um, to elders or leaders, far more comprehensive than the teaching of the Bible allows. So you tend to find that with legalists, they go for a very authoritarian leadership in the church. And, and you know, they make, you know, like, submit your elders becomes virtually do whatever they say. Far more comprehensive than the scripture actually allows. Go to 2 Corinthians 11. Let's see what Paul thinks about this, authoritarian leaders. Uh, 2 Corinthians and chapter 11. Um, find verse 20. This is Paul at his height of sarcasm here. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 20. Paul was often sarcastic, because sarcasm can really make, make the point. Right, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 20. And uh, he's, he's talking about the fact that in Corinth, you know, leaders had come in, they were trying to oust Paul and his influence, and, you know, they were kind of people who had appointed themselves, not appointed by God. And he said, um, in fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you, or exploits you, or takes advantage of you, or pushes himself forward, or slaps you in the face. What leadership? <laughs> to my shame, I admit, we were too weak for that. Now what Paul's saying, look, you've got leaders, people in your church, and they've become leaders. I mean, they're slapping you around. They're giving you the runaround. They're taking over your lives. He said, I wouldn't stand for that. And you mustn't stand for it either. Can you see? Authoritarian eldership is out. And uh, in the Church Life series, we saw the tremendously limited extent of eldership authority. And of course the point is that elders are there to use what authority they have, and it's not much. They're there to use it to bring believers into maturity so that they can be independent in the Lord as they grow up. But the point is that the authoritarian, you know, kind of eldership just brings people into unthinking subservience. And that's completely wrong. And, uh, you know, that's, that's where, where the worst seeds of their own destruction are, are, are planted in movements where the leadership is, is far too authoritarian. Eventually, it becomes a completely destructive thing. And then, fifthly, legalists tend towards harshness. Um, a legalistic attitude um, will make you aloof. Um, it will make you someone who lacks mercy and compassion. Um, it will make you someone who's not very understanding. Um, and legalism will make you look like you're a cut above other mere pleb Christians. Now, just say you're in a church, all right, and uh, amongst the leadership, all right, uh, or in the church in general, you've got believers who are mature and balanced, and you've got believers who are legalistic. The legalistic believers are not going to be the ones you want to go to with your personal problems. Because you know that you're going to get such a turning off from them. You're just going to get told to pull your socks up. Can you see what I mean? They're not going to try and understand. Because it's as if they're above that kind of weakness. Can you see? It's as if they're absolutely just so in the Lord. 
And uh, if you're not, well, why aren't you? Do you see what I mean? And so, a legalistic, yeah, because it's always accompanied with pride, spiritual pride and superiority. So you're going to find that legalists, they're not very merciful, they're not very compassionate. Uh, go to Matthew uh, again and, uh, and find chapter 9. Matthew and chapter 9. And uh, find verse 13. And um, this is something Jesus says uh, to the Pharisees. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And here you've got Jesus, you know, being sarcastic. Because these Pharisees, I mean, you know, the, the smallest sacrifice, they made it. They made it, no question. They wouldn't have missed a sacrifice for the world. But Jesus said, look, God wants mercy. You know, the sacrifice is neither here nor there. Your mercy, you know, it's mercy that God wants. And when he says, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners, he's being sarcastic. Because he's saying, you don't need me, you think, you, you know, you're righteous. Well, of course, Jesus knew they won't. But he didn't even bother to tell them they were sinners. Oh, you think you're righteous? Oh, okay, you're righteous. I've come for the sinners. And, of course, the whole point here with the Pharisees is that they thought they were righteous. So given that they thought they were righteous, when they looked upon people who they considered to be sinners, well, I mean, they hardly had the time of day for them except to tell them off. And that's what a legalistic attitude does. Go to Luke. Luke chapter 11. I mean, we'd expect it in the Pharisees, but it's a tragedy when it happens in Christians. Luke chapter 11 and verse 46. And again, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, he says, You experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one little finger to help them. You see that attitude? It will rebuke what it sees to be wrong, but it's not going to climb down there in the muck with that person and raise them up from within the problem. Whereas, of course, the Lord is compassionate. And compassion, you know, we've seen this before, means to vibrate in sympathy. You know, that oneness with that person. And the point is, Jesus said, I have come not to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's what Jesus did. Because his mercy led him to sacrifice himself. There was no externalism with Jesus. It was all a reality from his heart. And you'll find that with legalistic Christians, they're not going to, to get in there with you and help you. I mean, the balanced, mature, you know, sort of Christian. I mean, if you're in trouble, I mean, even if you've done something utterly unforgivable, utterly inexcusable, the point is, a Christian who's not a legalist, he knows that he's done exactly the same. It might have been a different sin, but you're no different to him. And he's not going to sort of like, you know, sort of like you go to him with him and say, oh, well, you shouldn't have done this, blah, blah, blah. He's going to use his own experience to totally identify with you. So that it's not you, the sinner, going to the big righteous man. It's you, the sinner, going to another sinner who, who, who can say, well, when I did that sort of thing, this is how the Lord, or who might even say, well, I'll tell you, there's areas in my life where I'm still as screwed up as ever. 
identify with you. Not going to, you know, sort of like, you know, from a great height come down on you like a ton of bricks, all right? So the point is that legalism lacks compassion. It's, it's spiritually haughty, all matter of fact, and it's all kind of telling off blah, blah, blah. So to sum up legalism and how you can spot it, is that legalism represents a holiness which places demands and restrictions on people other than those that can be demonstrated by chapter and verse from the Word of God. And that's the important thing. Legalism will place burdens on you or say you ought to be doing this or you ought not to be doing that when these things cannot be shown from chapter and verse in the Bible. If I say you mustn't commit adultery, I can show you that chapter and verse in the Bible. Legalism brings in things and says you mustn't do it and that's wrong and that's wrong without being able to show chapter and verse from the Bible. And legalists tend to be condemnatory people rather than loving and understanding in their approach. The Pharisee type, if you like. Okay. Now, that's not to say that the balanced believer who's not into legalism isn't going to correct sin. It's not saying that at all. But the attitude will be entirely different. And the person who's not a legalist isn't going to have any bees in their bonnets. All right, say you do something that I personally wouldn't do, but it's one of the grey areas. Well, so what if you're having fun? Brilliant. You want me to have fun, don't you? It's no big deal, nothing to fight over. But the legalist, he's wanting to impose his ideas on everybody else. And, and, you know, the Pharisee, that's in effect what legalism is, the Pharisee-type Christian. And it must be said that any one of us, I mean, though possibly free from the error of legalism in general, any one of us at any time can have a bee in our bonnets about whatever it might be. You know, it might be anything. All right. And, you know, sort of, and, and end up being legalistic in regards to it. So that's the point. You can be up the legalistic wing on one thing. Well, if you are, back in the fuselage, please. Because it's going to disrupt fellowship with other Christians. It kind of makes you go around saying, well, you know, who, who, who do I feel I can have fellowship with? You know, sort of believers following the Lord isn't enough. You want them to be following the Lord your way. You see what I mean? even when the Bible doesn't specify. And we've got to judge ourselves carefully in this matter. We've got to make sure that legalism, that any time, you know, we, we, that when we spot legalism creeping in, let's identify it on the basis in which I've given us and remove it from our lives, repent of it, because at the back of it is spiritual pride and superiority, the exact opposite from the humility that should mark a sinner saved by grace. Right, now let's move on up the other wing now, the license wing. What are the distinguishing characteristics of believers with a streak of license in them? Firstly, they reserve. <laughs> they, there are times when your mind just goes blank, aren't there? Believers into license, I was sitting there trying to think, now what are believers into license called? And I was sitting there thinking, licentiousness, and I thought, no, it can't be that. So, believers into license, all right, firstly, they reserve the right to absolve themselves from the responsibility of obeying whatever teachings of the New Testament don't suit them. That's the first mark of a believer 
with a streak of license. They consider themselves ultimately to be a law unto themselves. Rather than being in the position where they say the Bible judges my actions, and the Bible is the authoritative word of God, they will rather sit in judgment on the Bible. Now, we've got to sit in judgment on the Bible to the extent we've got to find out what it means. That's fair. You've got to say, well, what does this mean? Blah, blah, blah. But what I'm saying is that once one has satisfactorily established what the Bible says about something, it is our judge. Believers into license will play around with the Bible and say no, you know, and they'll sit in judgment on the Bible. And that's what I mean by they consider themselves ultimately to be a law unto themselves. They are their own final authority, not the word of God, not the Lord. But usually, desiring not to be considered backsliders, because a Christian who's going against the word of God is a backslider. But these, these people, not wanting to be considered backsliders, because they say they're disciples, what they do is they twist the Bible, and then they start claiming the leading of the Holy Spirit to justify in what it, you know, whatever thing it is that they're being disobedient concerning. Uh, go to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, and um, find verse... 15. Um, he says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patient means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes in the same way in all His letters. His letters, thanks. Speaking in them on these things. His letters contain some things which are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. So what Peter is saying is that there are some Christians, they don't like some of the things that Paul is saying, but Paul is writing scripture. So what they do is they twist it to try and get round it. And, uh, you know, so the point is that with believers into license, if legalists want everything to be black and white with no shades of grey, the truth about believers into license is they don't want any black or white at all. They want everything to be shades of grey. It's as simple as that. Um, you know, the truth is that they are simply fighting against the Lord's authority over them. And they want all the black and whites to go away. They want everything to be a shade of grey. Because the important thing about the grey areas is it's up to you. Now these believers want ultimately everything to be up to you, up to them. So that there's no actual authority over them at all. Uh, go to 1 Thessalonians and we'll see Paul actually, this would have been one of the things that the people didn't like about Paul and what he says, 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and uh, verse, verse 1 and 2. Um, he says, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are now living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord, Ju in the Lord, Jesus, in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Now that's what the Bible's about. It's giving us our instructions. It's giving us our orders, 
And the Lord expects us to live in obedience to the instructions that the Bible gives. But believers into license, they don't want to be under the Lord's authority in that way. Therefore, they reserve the right to kind of go against anything they don't particularly like. But they'll try and justify it, say the Holy Spirit's leading, or twist the Bible. Oh, well, that was only Paul's opinion, wasn't it? Doesn't apply today, etc., etc. And yet the truth is that they're simply going against God's authority in their lives. That is what license is all about. And then the second thing about believers into license is that you'll find that their individuality, them as individuals, becomes more and more of an all-pervasive individualism. Now, let me explain that. We are all individuals. Individuality is never lost as a Christian. You are you and will always be you, and that's what Jesus wants, because he created you. Individuality is good. But individualism in the body of Christ is when any one of us puts ourselves and our needs and our wants above the needs and wants of other people. That's what I mean when I say that license, individuality, becomes more and more an all-pervasive individualism. All right. The essence of discipleship worked out in practical terms, is self-denial for the benefit of other people. That's its essence. Jesus came to serve. He denied himself and he served others. The essence of being a disciple is serving the Lord through denying yourself. But if you're serving the Lord, then you serve him by serving other people people as well. Whereas license, rather than being concerned with denying itself to serve others, license simply becomes self-assertiveness purely for its own benefit. License, it's me, 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 what I want, what I want. Go to 1 John, the first letter of John. 1 John, and chapter 3, verse 16. It's a good one to remember, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, blah, 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 and here's another 3, 16. It's quite interesting, actually. Go through the New Testament, look at all the 3, 16s. It's a fascinating little study, that. Right, okay, 1 John 3, 16. Now look what he says. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Now that is what discipleship is all about. But license wants everyone else to lie down so it can walk all over them. And that's the point. Believers into license, you will find that they are really into their own rights as Christians. But not very much into submitting to others and serving those around them. Now, it's true, we do have rights as Christians, but our main concern ought not to be with me getting my rights, but what can I do to ensure that you get yours? Jesus didn't come asserting his rights. He came to give us rights that we wouldn't have had. By dying for us, he gave us the right to become sons of God, as it says in John's Gospel. 
Now, license isn't concerned for the rights of others, it's only concerned for its own rights. And, and, and the life of self-sacrifice and self-denial is alien to believers into license. Just, just see this, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and, and just see the principle. License hates verses like this, loathes them. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7. Now, what was happening here in the Corinthian church, they were so out of order, they were so licentious, that they were swindling each other in business. And they were dragging each other through the law courts. They were suing each other left, right and centre. Now look what Paul says. He says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Now there, Paul says, it's actually better to be cheated than to create a scandal in the body of Christ. So here you have believers, they've been cheated, they've been wronged. And so they, they were dragging other believers through civil courts before unbelievers and bringing the church into scandal, scandalizing the name of Jesus. And Paul says, look, okay, if someone is being cheated and wronged, the church must deal with the culprit but you don't take them to court. You see what I mean? It's far better to just be wronged or cheated than to consider bringing the name of Jesus into disrepute by taking that before unbelievers in a civil action. Now that's self-denial. Whereas license will say, well, he cheated me, I want my pound of flesh. But discipleship will say, okay, if the only way I can get my money back is to disgrace the name of the Lord, I give that money to the Lord, I sacrifice it to him. That's what Paul says, that is the way of discipleship. Can you see how license would hate a verse like this? Oh, well, I might be done out of my rights. Yeah, absolutely, that's the whole point about being a disciple. Ultimately, we haven't got any. And what few we do have, Jesus says, are you willing to lay them down for your brothers? Yeah. License, believers into license, are characterised in effect by utter selfishness. Because that's what license is. It's what I want. What I want. Me, 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 me. And I'm not going to let a small thing like what the Bible teaches stand in my way. That is, in effect, what believers into license are. Go to, to Philippians. For a verse that not only defines, you know, what license is, so it's the exact opposite of license, but it, it shows us how, how we ought to be. Now, Philippians 2 and verse 3, Paul simply says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that's the opposite of license, and that's the definition of what it is to be a disciple. See? To count others. What, what you want is more important than what I want. Now that's rock bottom. You know, I mean, Jesus thought that what we needed was more important than what he needed. And so he came and he gave his life. That is the essence of following Jesus. And it is the exact opposite um, of, you know, being a disciple. Sorry, that is the exact opposite of what license 
is all about. So complete selfishness and individualism is always a sure sign of licentiousness in a believer's life. Now then, thirdly, believers with a streak of license in them tend to be soft on sin, especially their own. And they want a kind of a anything-goes type of setup. That's the sort of church they want, where, you know, more or less anything goes. I mean, not necessarily absolutely anything, anything, anything. I mean, you know, it's not necessarily that, you know, all believers want to be a church that would, you know, sort of like grant to, you know, sort of, you know, lesbians a marriage and say, well, it's fine for you to live together or to homos, you know, not necessarily going that far, although there are many genuine Christians who do go that far. You know, but not necessarily that far, but by, you know, they want it relaxed. You know, anything goes kind of thing. And, but of course the reason, you know, you've got to understand why is it that they're soft on other people's sin. Now initially, um, I mean, it's, it's easy to spot the legalist as not being a very loving person. Because, you know, I mean, their kind of attitude, the superiority, blah, blah, blah. But it's very easy to mistake the believer into license for being a very good, what you might call, counsellor. Oh, they're so understanding. <laughs> The thing that you've got to hear, are they only going to understand or are they going to address sin as being what it actually is? You see, there are many Christians who are marvellous listeners and they're great people to go to, you know, kind of, you know, like if you're in sin, because they'll say, oh no, it doesn't matter. I mean, I mean, that's wonderful ministry if you want to be rebellious, isn't it? And there are loads of Christians who could do that. You know, you might be sleeping with your girlfriend. Oh, well, it doesn't matter. You love each other. You know, can you see what I mean? And it can all, all seem very, very loving, but I mean, it's not. It's absolute poison. It really is. And of course, the reason that they're soft on other people's sins is so that they can justify themselves. You see, it's the principle of safety in numbers. It's a kind of, um, I'll, I'll tell you you're right, and, and you tell me I'm right. Can you see? It's, I'll, I'll, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. That's why believers in a license are so stum on sin. You see, because if they start making a fuss about yours, you might start making a fuss about theirs. And they don't want anyone making a fuss about theirs. Can you see what I mean? I'm happy fiddling my taxes. I don't want anyone, you know, or whatever. Or, you know, I mean, it, what's the problem? I, I swear. Like the factory, they all swear. I'm one of the lads. Paul was all things to all men, wasn't he? So I swear as well. It's a good witness. You see, don't want it. I, you know, all these daft things, you know, oh, okay, I have a few drinks, I get a bit merry. You see, they're soft on other people's sin because they want other people to be soft on their sin. It's a contract, it's a deal. I don't know why they don't draw up contracts. You know, or call themselves the soft on sin fellowship or whatever, because that's what it is. It's a conspiracy that they run between themselves. I'll be quiet about your sin and the deal is that you're quiet about mine. Go to James. Go to James. Should we be soft on sin? Now, I mean, I'm not saying about the legalists going around slagging everyone off. That's not what I'm talking about. But we're asking now, should we be soft on sin? Is the Bible soft on sin? Were the New Testament Christians and apostles and writers soft on sin? James chapter 4, verse 7. Written to Christians, all right? Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now you'll hear that verse preached on from any pulpit at some point, you know. What you won't get are the next verses. I've never, ever, ever, ever heard anyone speak on these verses that follow. Come near to God and he will come near to you. 
you get the first part of verse 8. What you don't get is this. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he'll lift you up. Written to a church, written to believers. Well, so much for being soft on sin. The Bible does not play repentance down. The Bible plays it up. You see what I mean? Yeah, we're to be understanding, compassionate about sin. Of course we are. But not accepting of it in the sense of, oh, it doesn't matter, because it jolly well does matter. So, the third characteristics of believers into license is that they're soft on sin. And, uh, and then the next thing I'd say about believers with a streak of license in them is that they tend to have a problem with leadership in the church. Unless, of course, they are the leader. Then they're the happiest people on earth, all right. But you tend to find that believers into license, they have a problem with leadership. Now, they don't have problem with the average leadership in a church, you know, <coughs> where, where no one, you know, it's anything goes. And the leaders are just there to make sure that it's the favourite choruses of the day that get sung, all right. But believers with a streak of license in them have a real problem with leadership in biblical churches. And this is because their fundamental problem, we're back to it, the first thing we saw, their fundamental problem is with authority. That is the problem of a believer into license. The problem of the believer into legalism is spiritual pride and superiority and all that. The problem with the believer into license is rebellion, pure and simple. The refusal to come fully and significantly under the authority of God. And what you've got here, and we're talking carnal Christians, the licentious, what you've got here is believers whose innate rebellion against God remains unbroken. Now, when we're believers, when we get converted, we're all full of innate rebellion against God. That's why we needed saving in the first place. But that innate rebellion needs to be broken. In whatever way God does it, and whenever God does it. But believers into license of people, they are unbroken. They are strong-willed, they are stiff-necked. They will not bow to the ultimate authority of the Lord and His Word. They are what the Bible would call carnal Christians. And the reason they're going to have a problem with leadership in a biblical church is because whether they like it or not, whether they expect it or not, they will be held to account for their behaviour. And that, above all else, is what they hate. Go to 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. And, um... chapter 1 and verses 10 to 12, <clears throat> what Paul says here. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you may agree with each other, so that there may be no divisions among you, because wherever you get licentiousness, you get division, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, 
another I follow Cephas, that's Peter, still another I follow Christ. Now what you've got here is believers who are picking and choosing the person whose teaching suits them the best. Can you see what I mean? And, and so they're boiling down into factions. So you might have a group and what holds them together is that they're, you know, doing A is all right amongst them. And then this other group, they're into B. Well, so B, yes, that's all right if you do that here. Can you see what I mean? And they're breaking down. And of course, what you've got here, you've got the people who say, I follow Christ. Mm. Now here you have the super spirituals because they're the ones who are saying, but the Holy Spirit's leading us. You see what I mean? So what's happening is they're all breaking down into little warring factions. But the thing that holds them together is that they're agreeing, you know, they want Christianity to, you know, we'll make it easier in this way, and this other group, we'll make it easier in this way, and they're all fighting with each other, uh, going with the leadership that suited them, because they're not prepared to be living in submission to the broad, what I call, council of Scripture. And then in chapter 3, and the first four verses, he says, Brothers, I couldn't address you as spiritual, but as worldly mere infants in Christ. Then in verse 3 he says, you're still worldly. There's jealousy and quarrelling among you. Are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? And of course, what you've got here is quite simply that they're saying, well, I don't like so-and-so and his teaching, so he's out. I'll, 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 I'm prepared to go with this bloke's teaching. So I'm saying, well, no, I'm not, because I don't agree with what he said. Can you see? And it's all, everyone, suit, you know, setting their own, you know, sort of doctrine. And Paul talks about that in the last days, that there'll, you know, be people with itching ears, and all these preachers will appear who'll tell them just what their ears are itching to hear. A soft gospel, a, a kind of a, a watered-down discipleship. The whole thing is just a form of license. And uh, if you just go to Hebrews 13, and we'll see the thing where believers into license will always eventually be caught out if they're part of a biblical church. And in Hebrews 13, verse 17, he says simply this. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. And that is where believers into license will always, in a biblical church, get caught out in time. Because they will be held to account. And being held to account is the one thing that believers into license will not tolerate. Because they are a law unto themselves. So got to start, you know, kind of winding up here. Let's contrast the two errors that we've seen. Legalism knows only black and white. Licence wants everything to be shades of grey. Legalism imposes unbiblical rules and regulations. Licence wants no rules and regulations. Legalism wants unthinking robotic obedience. Licence wants an anarchy and a free-for-all. Legalism would excommunicate at the drop of a hat. Licence would never even entertain the concept. Now, I've given you those in their extreme forms, but that gives you an idea of, you know, kind of like, you know, the each uh, thing. 
Now, legalists accused biblically balanced believers of being into license. Whilst believers into license will call them legalists. You see, if you're balanced, if you're scripturally in the middle, you've got the legalists over here, they're going to say you're into license. Because you're not doing the Sabbath keeping and the tithing, you know, and you're watching telly, or, or whatever. <laughs> but then, the, those into license would look at a biblically balanced church and say, oh, they're legalists. See what I mean? No women elders, oh, they're legalists. Huh, you know, drive according to the speed limit, they're legalists, we're not under law, we're under grace. You see, that each error, the church in the middle, the balanced church, is going to get accused by each camp of being the opposite of what that camp is. And remember, we shouldn't be on either wing of the plane, we should be in the fuselage at the place of balance, alright. But these two errors can get tied up in, in the most extraordinary and self-contradictory way that you get legalism and license bound up together. For instance, the Catholic Church. Now, the Catholic Church has at its centre the most audacious license. It considers itself able to pronounce against the Word of God authoritatively. So there we see the Catholic Church refusing to be under the authority of the Bible. That's license. At the heart of the Catholic Church is the most awful license. And yet, it operates a religious system of the most appalling legalism. Now, can you see the way that the two are tied up? Um, that's the Catholic Church. At the other end of the spectrum, let's talk about house churches, more akin to ourselves. There are house churches that have female elders. License, because the Bible forbids it. License. And yet, there are churches that have women elders who will practice an authoritarian eldership that goes way beyond what the Bible allows and, you know, incorporates such thing as mandatory tithing and Sabbath observance, blah, blah, blah. So you've got women elders license telling you that you've got to tithe. Legalism. You see, and it's such a hodgepodge and we've got to make sure that, that we're so careful. So basically, in winding up, we've got to say, so therefore, what is the balance for us as a church? How do we go down the middle? And, and let's not think we're always going to be perfectly in the middle. We're not. We're going to be going from one era to the other in various areas of life, and we've got to all the time be catching ourselves, be judging ourselves accordingly and putting it right. So what's the balance for us as a church? We are free from the law of Moses and its demands and restrictions. Further than that, we are free from any demands and restrictions that come from any source other than the New Testament. And quite regardless of what those sources might be, whether it's church traditions, whether it's the bees in each other's bonnets, or whether it's the latest really anointed Bible teacher, you see, we are free from any restrictions from any source other than the New Covenant. Nothing in this fellowship is required except it be clearly demonstrable from chapter and verse in the New Covenant. Alright? Galatians 5.1 for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty you have. That is the freedom that we have. And if that makes us guilty of license, 
as, legal, as legalists would accuse us of being, then I'm happy to be guilty of such license. However, we are fully under the clearly delineated demands and restrictions of the new covenant. We are not free from that. Having belonged to sin as its slaves, we now belong to the Lord and are his slaves. And we've seen this, didn't we? You know, when Paul said, look, okay, once we were slaves to sin, but now we're slaves to God. The freedom we have is that we're free from the dominion of sin to be now under the dominion of God in our lives. So we're free to be mastered by God. We're not free full stop. No such thing as perfect freedom in that sense. Do what you like. Okay. So the full demands and restrictions of the new covenant of grace to the extent of our understanding of them and our maturity at any one time, the full demands and restrictions of that grace and teaching are gently but firmly being established in our lives by the Lord. And with grace and mercy abounding to each when we fall, and if we fall we have to repent and put that life, that right, nevertheless we as a church are pledged to such sanctification in our lives. And that's what we're all here for, and that's the understanding. And if anyone doesn't like that, well, there are many churches where I'm sure they'd feel happier in. But that is what we are about. And in the eating of our love feast, and we remember we saw the love feast to be the new, you know, the meal of that covenant. It's the covenant meal. And as a church, when we eat that meal, we bind ourselves together in a common pledge of that goal that God be dealing with our lives and delivering us from the power of sin. And so this ongoing work of God's grace in our lives, bringing us into holiness and maturity, that is what we as a church are pledged to. And the demands and restrictions of the new covenant are binding on us. And where any of us are going astray on that and going against the Lord, then gently, lovingly, but if need be, firmly, we will, any of us, leadership included, be held to account by the others. And that is absolutely right and proper. And if that makes us legalists, as believers into license would accuse us of being, and we've had lots of that, haven't we? The, the, the main complaint we get is that we're legalists, you know, in this church. If what I've just said makes us legalists, uh, as believers into license would accuse us of being, then I am happy to be guilty of a legalism like that. You see, that is the biblical balance all the way through. So remember, to be balanced in that way, yeah, you're going to be getting accused of different things. There might at any one time be a set of believers over here accusing you of being a legalist. Whilst there's another set of believers over here saying, oh, you're into license. It depends what their point of view is. But our concern is that we, we aim to be in that fuselage. And where we end up on either wing, in whatever way, then we need to just 
accept that, look at that, acknowledge it, and then get back into the fuselage, you know, so that the Lord can balance us out. And so it's a lovely mixture of a love, a self-sacrifice for each other, that all the time, if we practice that, is going to save us from the harsh, harshness and unloving outlook of the legalists. You know, a freedom, and yet at the same time, holding each other to what the Bible does say, so that we don't therefore end up slipping into a, a licentiousness, a kind of an anything goes. You know, we've just got to love each other through it all the time. Of course we've got to love each other through everything all the time. But sometimes that very love means speaking that word of correction to each other. So, there you have it. We are not under law, we are under grace. And, and now we can see fully what that is. And uh, I, I think at, at that point, that brings this subject to a, a natural and logical conclusion. So we'll end it there. Just a quick postscript here. Um, although you heard me just say that that was the last tape, in fact it isn't, and one more follows. So I'm um, sorry about that.